You can turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 9, 23 through 28 this morning. Hebrews 9, 23 through 28. What's the hardest thing you've had to wait for? It's just really hard to wait. You just couldn't wait for. Waiting is a is a part of every human being's experience. We wait, and we wait. We wait in lines. We wait in waiting rooms. We wait for packages to arrive. We wait in cars and buses and airplanes to arrive at destinations that we are trying to get to. We wait for holidays. We wait for wedding days. We wait for payday, whenever that comes around, we wait to hear from the hospital or from doctors. We wait to hear from close family members and friends. Maybe you're just waiting for lunch right now. What we wait for, though, is what actually captures our hearts. We don't wait for things that aren't worth waiting for. In fact, the human experience, we're always evaluating. Is this even worth waiting for? But we do wait for what matters. We do wait for what we love. We wait for the people we love. Waiting. It's part of our text this morning. Let's look at Hebrews 9, 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Father, we ask that your word would not just hit our ears, but that it would come into our minds and trickle down into our hearts, that we might get life from it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Hebrews is a letter written to Christians, encouraging them to, to persevere in their faith. Uh, the, there's, there's warnings about neglecting salvation, about neglecting our hearts, about, about falling away from God. And to summarize the author's exhortation, to not fall away, to not neglect such a great salvation, if we're going to summarize his argument as concisely as possible, it is Jesus is better. Jesus 
is better. Jesus uh, is, is a priest of a better priesthood. We see in, or that we've already seen in chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, Jesus' superior priesthood is also uh, uh, indicative of, of a superior covenant that God has made, a new covenant that has come. God has always, has always related to his people through covenants. He has always condescended graciously to offer blessings and make promises of his people. And, and as the one who has brought a superior priesthood, he has brought a superior covenant, which we see in chapter 8. In chapter 9, we've seen that Jesus' superior priesthood and superior covenant lead to a superior worship, a greater worship. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the primary context of worship was the tabernacle. In the New Covenant, the primary context of worship is heaven. We also see in chapter 9, the author moves on from a superior priesthood and a superior covenant and a superior worship to the superior sacrifice that Jesus offered. He not only is a superior priest who brings an offering, but he offers a superior offering. And all this superiority makes possible a greater inheritance for God's people. We get an eternal inheritance because of all this greaterness, the superiority that Jesus delivers. And, and the inheritance is the eternal inheritance that traces all the way back to the inheritance promised to Abraham. We looked at that last time, a couple months ago. So the author is pointing here to a significant upgrade, right? This is much, much more, much, much better than an upgrade from an iPhone 13 to an iPhone 14, Right, this is much better than uh, a 2012 F1, F-150 to a 2022 F-150. This is a much, much better upgrade. This is, when we're using the word better, we're using it much more superlatively than, uh, than those types of upgrades. And, and as we look at the superior sacrifice of the superior priest in verses 23 through 28 here, we see that it's a better sacrifice with a better Result. That's what's in your notes this morning. There, there's a better sacrifice for sin, and that's due to its location and its effectiveness. And then it produces a better result for sinners because of a better purification, uh, because of, of a better death for sin, and then because of a better hope in death. So let's turn our attention here first to what makes Christ's sacrifice superior for sin. What makes Christ's sacrifice better? We begin here in verse 23 with a connection to all that's come before. We see there in verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Throughout chapter 9, we've had this vivid uh, description of, of the tabernacle that we've, we've looked at. Hebrews 8, 5, you could jump up back to chapter 8 and verse 5. It describes the, the priest's sacrifices in the Old Covenant. It describes them as, as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. A copy and a shadow. But then here in chapter 9, we see that, that the tabernacle is a copy of heavenly things as well. And everything in the tabernacle was purified with blood. You look back up in verse 19 of chapter 9 here, right? The book and the people were sprinkled 
with blood. Or in verse 21, the tents and the vessels that were used in the worship in the tabernacle were sprinkled with blood. And again, blood is a sign of death. And death is the consequence of sin, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Eden when God promised. If you eat, in the day that you eat of it, speaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So in order to worship God, there has to be an acknowledgement of sin. There has to be an atoning for sin. There has to be a death, and the blood is the sign of the death. But that was in the Old Covenant. That was in the realm of the, the types and shadows, the copies of heavenly things. Now the author shifts focus to the New Covenant here in chapter 9. And the sacrifices of the New Covenant are better in two ways, or at least two ways that he describes here, his Christ's high priestly offering is better in two ways. First of all, there's a better location. So look at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. It's interesting the way he says that. It's better, the sacrifice is better because of where Christ did not go after he made the sacrifice. Because of where he did not Go. Christ did not go into the tabernacle. He did not go into the temple after the sacrifice was made. That's what happened year after year in the Old Covenant. Sacrifice is made, and then we go into the tabernacle, into the temple with the blood, to present the blood before God. Christ didn't go into the temple. He didn't go into a holy place made with human hands. He didn't go into the copy and the shadow of heaven he went into heaven itself. If you look back up in verse 11, he calls it the greater and more perfect tent. Christ went into the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And as a reminder, as we've already seen, this, this places emphasis on something that's often neglected in the way that we think about Christ and what he's done for us, and that is in Christ's ascension. It's, it's wonderful that Christ died, and it's wonderful that he arose, but then it's also wonderful that he ascended into heaven. He is not our high priest in Jerusalem. Christ is not our high priest. He's not, he doesn't represent us as a high priest in Jerusalem. He's our high priest in heaven at the right hand of God. It's good to have a high priest in Jerusalem, all right? That wasn't bad. It's not bad if you have a high priest who represents you in Jerusalem, but it is better to have representation before God in heaven itself, not in the copy and shadow, but in the true presence of God. And this is what Christ has done. He has offered a sacrifice, again in verse 24, he has appeared in the presence of God on our behalf. But it's not only the sacrifice, it's not only better because of where he did not go, it's also better because of what he did not do. He did not go somewhere, but he also did not do something like the Old Testament sacrifice. If you look at verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Christ did not sacrifice like the old covenant priests, right? Those sacrifices were repetitious day after day, year after year. And the author made that point clearly back in, in chapter 7. The old covenant required numerous priests because they kept getting old and dying. 
They also require numerous sacrifices because of the type of blood offered, the quality of blood offered, you might, you might say. The old covenant offered, a, offered blood not his own, it says in verse 25, but Christ offered his own blood. Priests kept getting old and dying. Christ holds his office permanently. It says in Hebrews 7.24, he continues forever. And he doesn't, we don't have numerous priests. We don't have, also don't have numerous sacrifices because Christ offered himself. It says in verse 27, looking back in Hebrews 7 again, so Hebrews 7.27, he has no need like those priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So he is the priest who comes, and then he is the priest who makes an offering, and his offering is not a lamb or a goat. His offering is his own body, his own self. And this is good because this is what is necessary in order to be right with the eternal God in heaven. In order to be right with the eternal God in heaven, we need eternally precious blood. And the only way we would have that is if God would come and somehow make a sacrifice himself, which is what he has done in Christ. It is Christ's infinitely precious blood that is presented as evidence of atonement in heaven. So up in verse 12 of chapter 9 here again, Hebrews 9, 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Old covenant sacrifices, you need multiple sacrifices for one person. Multiple sacrifices for you, just one person in the old covenant system. New covenant system, one sacrifice sufficient for all sinners. Significant, significant upgrade. So, so this point is teased out, though, in this, in this hypothetical that the author gives us in verse 26. If you look at verse 26. If Christ were to suffer repeatedly, he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. What's the author getting at here? He's, he's getting at the fact that Christ's sacrifice is not repetitious. He's, he's making the point again. This is not a repetitious sacrifice. It is wrong to, to think of or present the sacrifice of Christ as something that would happen again and again and again. If that is how Christ's sacrifice is, he would need to have started all the way back to the foundation of the world. Sin has been occurring for a long, long time. Paul describes Jesus as coming in Galatians 4. Jesus is coming in the fullness of time. He didn't come at the beginning. He came in the fullness of time. But when he came, sin had been taking place for a long time already. Years and years of sin, going all the way back to the foundation of the world. And if Christ's death and sacrifice is not sufficient once, then, then all those sins beforehand, had, there's, there's no hope. There's no hope for them. He would, he would have had to offer himself repeatedly. If, 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 his, if, if he has to offer himself again and again, he would need to have appeared in the Garden of Eden immediately when they sinned and then given himself again and again and again all throughout history. But Christ did not appear at the foundation of the world. He appeared, it says in verse 26, he appeared 
at the end of the ages is when he appeared. Paul uses the same phrase in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. You don't need to turn there, but Paul writes, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's when Christ appeared, at the end of the ages, or he, he says in, in Hebrews 1, in these last days, or like it says in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time. And Christ can appear at the end of the ages to deal with sin rather than at the very beginning. He can appear at the end of the ages to deal with sin because his sacrifice is once for all. That's what kind of sacrifice it is. We've already seen this phrase, once for all, repeated twice in Hebrews 7, 27, and in, in Hebrews 9, 12. The author will say to use it again in Hebrews 10, 10 in the next chapter. So let's take note of the emphasis that comes through the repetition of this this phrase, Jesus is sacrificed once. You don't need continual offerings when one offering is sufficient. The debt we owe because of sin, are, are the debt we owe to God, it didn't go to collections and then, and then somehow get, get negotiated down for as little as could possibly get to, to pay it off. Jesus came and absorbed the whole Debt took the whole punishment. So the, the, the whole point that it happened only once points to the fact of how effective this sacrifice was, how valuable this blood was. It was infinitely valuable. It was so valuable it could forgive sins that had been occurring for centuries before and then centuries even to come. It's sufficient for all who trust in him by faith. It's sufficient for all peoples, peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation, people in every age, from the very first age to the end of the ages, from Adam and Eve to the 21st century, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to pay the debt that you owe for sin. You are a creature created in the image of God who has failed to reflect his image the way that he created you to do so. And your conscience knows it. And it's not just, just meaningless. It's, it's, it's not just, well, well, whatever. God had a purpose for you. He has a purpose for you, and you have not fulfilled the purpose for you. And so you're in spiritual debt. It is, a, it is a bad place to be, but the good news is this forgiveness is available. The debt can be paid. The sacrifice is complete. The judgmental wrath of God is swallowed up whole in Christ's one sacrifice for sinners. So because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we can be saved. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Put your hope in his sacrifice for sin. His sacrifice is better than all other sacrifices. It is the one that was made and brought into heaven itself. Into heaven itself, into the presence of God. That only happened once. There's only one ascension of Jesus Christ. And it's the only one that's made with no repetition than needed. You can try to get to heaven on your own, but you will never get there on your own. 
I mean, if someone could draw you a map to get there, and even if you could get there somehow geographically, spatially somehow, even if you could get there, you would not be welcome there on your own. You'll never be able to point to a sacrifice that you have made that is sufficient to atone for your own sins. There's only one sacrifice that was made once that can atone for your, all sin, for your sins. So this all leads to that. So we have a better sacrifice, a way better sacrifice than the Old Testament sacrifices, Old Covenant sacrifices, and this leads to a better result for sinners. So we turn to a better result for sinners. And, and the first thing we see, going back up to verse 23, is there's a better purification that takes place. Hebrews 9.23, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now, it makes sense that the earthly tabernacle, that that needed to be made holy, that it needed to be purified in, in some way, right? That's an earthly tabernacle. We're talking about the copies and shadows here. Right, this is made with human hands. In one sense, these, these things are tainted. It makes sense that, okay, we would sprinkle these things that represent uh, what we're going to use uh, in order to worship God. We're going to sprinkle them with this symbolic sacrificial blood. And, and that's going to sort of set these things apart for this special use before God. Because God is holy. So now these things will be, they'll be holy. That makes sense that we had to purify those things. But why is it necessary Looking at verse 23, why is it necessary that the heavenly things themselves would need to be purified? Is this saying that heaven needs to be purified? Something in heaven is not purified? I mean, isn't heaven already pure? Why is it necessary that heaven, heavenly things, need to be purified with better sacrifices? Once again, it's, it's, it's crucial to understand the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant is specific. It's, it's, it's referring to the covenant given by God at Mount Sinai after God rescues his people from Egypt through the Red Sea, and they go to Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law. He enters into a covenant with them. He gives them instructions for worship. Part of that covenant is he's given them instructions for worship. He gives them instructions for the tabernacle. He tells them how to, uh, how, to, how to build it. He tells them how to make these special priestly garments for the priests. And then they do all this. And you read all this in the book of Exodus. You read it once about the instructions. And then you read it again when they actually build it and make it. And then it's all there at the very end of the book of Exodus. And then what happens, though? Well, everything's anointed with blood. They sprinkle everything with blood. And then what happens? Then the Holy Spirit comes and fills the tabernacle. They make it all first according, exactly according to his design. They, they sprinkle these things with blood. They anoint them. They make them holy. And then it's at that point the Holy Spirit comes and fills the tabernacle. So the last chapter of Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meaning and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So pay attention to the order there. That's the old covenant. New Covenant. The primary context for worship in the New Covenant is not the tabernacle. It's, it's, it's heaven itself. Look at verse 24. For Christ entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. So our focus shifts now from 
worship taking place in heaven, or taking place in the tabernacle, and the copy to worship taking place in heaven. But do we worship in heaven? No, we don't, we don't go up to heaven every, every Sunday morning. No, what needs to happen is heaven has to come down to us. Where is the tabernacle and the temple in the new covenant? Where, where, where does it go? Does it just disappear? That's just an old covenant. That's just Old Testament stuff, you know. That's back there. This is, this is now. No, where's the temple? Where is the temple in the new covenant? It's in this room. You are the temple in the new covenant. You get to be the tabernacle. The, tabern- the dwelling place of God in the new covenant becomes us. Talk about an upgrade. That, that is really different. That would have been astounding for an old covenant believer to imagine. In the new covenant, inaugurated by Christ at the end of the ages, after the great high priest has come and tabernacled among us, after he anoints us with his blood, then the Holy Spirit comes and he fills the tabernacle. He fills us. We've seen this in the, in, the, in the book of Ephesians here just recently, Ephesians 2.22. In him, you also are being built into a dwelling place for God. You're a dwell, the dwelling place of God. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, as you come to Christ, you yourselves, like living stones, so picture you build a house with stones, but these are living stones, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Uh, the author of Hebrews said this already in, in, in Hebrews 3 when he compares the house in which Moses served with the house in which Christ served. So Hebrews 3, 5, and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And then it says, and we are his house. The tabernacle, the temple is still a real important phenomenon in the new covenant, but the tabernacle becomes... The people of God. It becomes you and me. <laughs> Peter actually says, and, and this makes sense in the way that Peter says it, we're his spiritual house. Peter begins the letter of 1 Peter, Peter saying that we have been sprinkled with his blood. So the heavenly things are purified with better sacrifices than these. And, 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 and what needs purification in order to be, what needs purification is us, right? Heaven doesn't need purification. We are the ones that need purification in order for the, for the new covenant to, to play out. We are the new covenant temple. Christ's sacrifice it makes it possible for the heaven to come down and dwell in us. So, so a result of Christ's sacrifice is a better purification. It's better, that it, it's better in that it purifies completely. This is a purification that is comprehensive and it's permanent. It lasts forever. And it's better in the fact that it, 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 it purifies this new temple. This is a temple that's now made with living stones, living, breathing, talking, thinking, worshiping stones. And just think of the implications of this, it both, both individually and and collectively, individually, uh, 
this means for you, you can be purified. The Holy Spirit does not dwell in unholy houses, right? The Holy Spirit didn't come and and indwell the tabernacle until it had been made holy. So if Christ is indwelling, if the Holy Spirit can come and dwell in you, that means you can be made holy. Purification level in the old covenant, here's what that got you. That got you potentially within close proximity of where the Spirit of God dwelt. Purification level in the new covenant, the Spirit of God dwells in you. God, you're not, you don't get to get close to God. God, I mean, God comes and indwells you. That's what the blood of the Son of God can accomplish. That's individually. How about collectively? 21st century Americans, uh, it's not too hard for us to imagine how I can be the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? We love first-person pronouns in our culture. I, I mean, that sounds really great. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit, but, but really more properly, when we, when we look at this and how the New Testament speaks of this, uh, more fully or more properly, it's that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's collectively, we are the temple of God. What we're doing right now, what we're gathered here to do, we are gathered in one sense as the church, but we're gathered as the tabernacle of God. There's a book downstairs in the resource center by uh, uh, Dustin Benge, and it's called The Loveliest Place, and it's a whole book on the church. So he titled his book on the church, The Loveliest Place. This isn't the, the church is not the loveliest place because of our buildings. And it's not the loveliest place because of our, our clothes or our makeup or something like that. It's the loveliest place because it's the place where God's spirit dwells. What motivation? What motivation to battle our remaining sin? What motivation to, to, to hate our own selfishness and our own division? Not, we, we don't fight our sins so that we can become the dwelling place of God. We do this because we are the dwelling place of God. Purification is, is something that took place. It took place once for all. Christ died he rose, he ascended, and the Holy Spirit has, has come. So one result of Christ's superior sacrifice has been, has been purification of the dwelling place of God, much more amazing than the dwelling place of God in the Old Covenant. A second better result, though, is there's a better death for sin. There's a better end of sin. This is really simple. The author says it's quick, but this is, this is so powerful, and I don't want to miss it. <clears throat> he, he makes this comment quickly in verse 26. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One of the results of Christ's superior sacrifice is that he puts your sin away. Literally, it's, he, he removes it. He makes it so that it's gone. Something I say often, kids, maybe your parents say this often, put away your toys. Do your, your parents ever say that? Put away your toys. What do I want to happen when I say put away your toys? What I want you to do is to take, all, take this mess 
And I want you to take those and I want you to go put them in, pile them all up in the doorway of your bedroom. Right? That's what I mean. No, that's not what I mean. I don't want, I don't want a reconsolidated mess from going from here to over there. This is a bad illustration because toys are actually good. Toys are not bad. Sin is bad. Toys are a sign of God's blessings. But I'm not saying a lot, put your toys away. What do I mean when I say put the toys away? What I mean is I want the toys gone. I don't want to see the toys. Jesus doesn't just adjust our sin. His sacrifice doesn't just relocate our sin to another area. Uh, he doesn't reconsolidate our sin so that it's going to be more manageable in this other place. He removes our sin. If your hope is in the sacrifice of Christ and not in yourself, not in your own sacrifices, if it's not in your own righteousness, the sacrifice of Christ puts your sin away. This can be really hard for us to accept as people who continue to struggle with sin. Isn't it? Right? We trust, we, we have to trust that this is true by faith because sin is not completely gone yet. But here's the thing to remember as, as we wrestle with this, as you struggle with sin, as you struggle with doubts, if you're struggling to believe that you've actually Loved God enough. I mean, in that struggle, if, when you're doubting, you're probably either thinking of two things. You're probably either thinking of your own sin, which will always condemn you, or you're thinking of your own sacrifices that you've made for God. You will never be encouraged in your walk with God. You will never have assurance of, of what Christ has done, that your sins are forgiven when you're focused on what you have done, either your sins or your, the things that you have offered up to God. None of those things will ever give you strength and comfort in your own Christian life. They will always tell you you're guilty. We have to remember, it's not just that something has happened. It's that someone has done something. It's a person who has come and done something. Someone has put away our sins. Someone has come and offered infinitely precious blood. Someone has come and endured death for us. It's because of someone that we are not condemned. Our trust, your trust has to be in someone else and not in yourself. So what Paul can write in Romans 8, who is to condemn in one sense, anyone can condemn, starting with me, myself. Who is to, but Paul says, but who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And then he goes on, more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, or the way that John puts it in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He says, I don't want you to sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, righteous Jesus Christ. Righteous Jesus Christ. We will still sin, but Christ's sacrifice has put away our sin. Christ has entered heaven and serves as our advocate so that every sin that takes place, there is a reminder that this has been put away. 
That is where strength and comfort will come. Strength to fight your own sin and comfort when you feel condemned. It won't come from anywhere else. It will never come from looking at yourself. It will never become from looking at the church, looking at others. The only place strength and comfort will ever come in your Christian life, in your own battle with sin, is as you look to the one who put away sin. Which is why we look forward with eager expectation and hope. Sin, the, the way of, for some reason, this, I heard this years ago and it's just stuck with me. What Christ has done has meant that sin no longer has to reign in us. It doesn't exercise reign in us like it did before, before we came to Christ. It used to reign in us. It used to be that we couldn't do anything except sin. But now, it doesn't reign anymore. Now it, but it does remain still. It remains between Christ's first coming and, and second coming. What his first coming meant was that sin no longer had to reign but until his second, cousin, second coming, it means that it still remains. And how, how much does this make us look forward to expectation to his second coming? This leads us to the third result of Jesus' superior sacrifice. His sacrifice is not just better because it's a better death for sin. It's not just better because it's put away sin. It's also better because it gives us a better hope in death. Look at Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's appointed for man to die once. This has been true ever since the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> this is what God promised would take place if the fruit was taken and eaten Death is the consequence for sin. And every single human being dies. We're all waiting for different things. We're waiting for different things to happen, different dates to come. There's different birthdays, different dates of events, different milestones. And, and, and whatever you're waiting for right now, maybe it'll come, but maybe it won't. But one day that is surely coming for every one of us apart from Christ's coming again, is the date of our death. Every tombstone has a birth date and a death date. Every human being has waited for death. And so we're all waiting for many things. Well, one thing we all wait for together is we all wait for death. And there's three different, there's lots of different views on death, but there's basically three, it always boils down to about three different options of what takes place after death. Right, you have, you have one that's very popular today, which would be annihilation. After death, there's just nothing. You're gone. It's over. Another one would be that, no, there's life after death, but it's, it's a kind of cycle. So this would be reincarnation, right? Things operate in a kind of cycle, and there's, life, there's another kind of life in a different form that comes after death. That's reincarnation. But the third option, the third way people think about death is that judgment follows death. Christianity rules annihilation and reincarnation as error. That is not the world that God has made. That is not what the testimony of Scripture gives us. It is consistent again and again. The, the sequence is important. We have life, we have death, and death is followed by judgment. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us 
may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We're, we're not independent agents. We are not equals with God. We are God's creations. We are creatures made in his image. And upon death, we are called to account for our lives. So we have life, and then we have death, and then there's judgment. The order is, in, is important. That's always the order. There's not second chances. There's not further opportunities. Death is followed by judgment. So that is what we should expect. So not only are we all waiting for death, there's another sense in which we're all waiting for judgment. But just as everyone anticipates death, it's appointed for man to die once, Jesus also endured death once, but for Jesus it is different. For Jesus, judgment doesn't follow death. Why not? There's no judgment for the innocent. The grave could not hold righteous Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ the righteous. The grave couldn't hold him, which is why he rises again and then ascends into heaven, which brings us back to waiting for him. The Levitical priests in the Old Covenant on, on the Day of Atonement, right? The, uh, on the Day of Atonement, this is, we've uh, seen this again and again, right? This is where you have two goats, and one of the goats is slain, and the, the high priest brings the blood into the Holy of Holies once, and then he goes back, and he gets more, and he goes in a second time. The first time he goes in for himself, the second time he goes in for the sake of the people. Kent Hughes draws attention to the, 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 the drama that unfolds in this. Even, you think about this from the perspective of the person who would have been watching all this, just a sort of average, everyday Israelite. Right? The whole congregation waits outside while this happens. You watch the priest. You watch the sacrifice made. You watch the priest enter the tent and come back out and then enter the tent again. You just kind of imagine the silence that might come over the crowd in this moment. As they wait, when the priest goes into the temple and, and disappears, the high priest, he goes into the Holy of Holies. He goes into the presence of God on behalf of the people. This is where no one is allowed to go. He's not even allowed to go there except on this one day. And to some extent, there's a little bit of a question. Will he come back out? Will God accept this? sacrifice? Will he accept this offering? Uh, about 150 years before Christ, there was a, a, a Jewish a scribe and poet named Joshua ben Sirah, and he describes this day of atonement. He describes what, 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 what would take place uh, as the high priest would emerge on the day of atonement after offering this sacrifice, going in once and going in Christ. He writes, how glorious he was when the people gathered round him as he came out of the inner sanctuary. Like the morning star among the clouds, like the moon when it is full, like the shine, sun shining upon the temple of the Most High, and like the rainbow gleaming in glorious clouds. It was, it was a wonderful moment when the, when the high priest comes out of the temple. Sacrifice had been made. Atonement is is, is, is achieved, forgiveness is, is promised, and he comes out alive. He survived being in the presence of God, 
God accepted the sacrifice. Oh, the joy that comes over the people. That's in the copy and shadow. So how much more for us? Our high priest has made his sacrifice. Our high priest, so he offers himself. He doesn't bring a lamb. He is the lamb. He offers his sacrifice. The, the sacrifice has to die, so he dies. But of course, he rises. And then he ascends into heaven. He ascends into the holy of holies. And now, we wait. So are you waiting? Are you waiting for him? We don't, we don't just die and go to heaven like the country songs say. We wait for Christ to reemerge. For him to return for our sal- salvation, for which, which will be the consummation of all things, which will be the end, the final end of sin and death. In one sense, we're, we're in the day of atonement perpetually until Christ comes again. This is why there's two comings of Christ. He has entered the temple again, and now we wait for him to re-emerge. But when he re-emerges, uh, what glory it will be. The end of sin and judgment, the end of sadness and, and tears. You think of the things, all the things that we wait for. All the things that occupy our minds. We wait, and the day comes, and it comes, whatever it is, and it's exciting, and it's good. But then the moment passes, and then it's over. And then we think of the next thing to wait for. But this day will be different. This day will satisfy our deepest longings. This day will not come and then pass away. This, this day will come, and it will continue unending. This will be the day of the giving of the eternal inheritance. Are you waiting for this day? Or what are you waiting for? The whole world waits for death. The whole world waits for judgment. But those who know Christ, they wait eagerly for Christ. Death and judgment are not the final words for us. We can approach both death and judgment with hope because of what Christ has done. So do you, are you struggling with hope? Are you living like someone who only has death and judgment awaiting? Those things are coming. But remember, you have a great high priest. Don't look at your sin or don't look only at your sin. All that deserves is death and judgment. Look to your heavenly high priest who advocates in heaven right now and who is coming Again, more than dis, just death and judgment awaits, which is why Christians are distinctly different people. This is not all we have. There is so much more to come. And so in the meantime, we wait. We are awaiting people. And waiting can be hard. But God has not left us with help as we wait. He has given us his word. We can hear his voice as we wait. He has, he has taught us how to pray. We can talk to him and express our needs to him while we wait. He has blessed us with the, with the church. We don't wait alone. We wait with others. 
He's given us tangible, visible signs that all this is true. Just as we eat the bread in communion, as real as that bread is in our mouth, so real will be the return of Jesus bodily for his people. And he has given us his spirit, as it says in Ephesians, as the guarantee of our inheritance to come. How crazy is it that we neglect these gifts, that we treat these gifts as they're uh, just something we get to sometimes. We need his word. We need to grow in prayer. We need his church. We need the worship and ordinances of the church that sustain us while we wait. And even when we get distracted, which is far too often, our advocate remains in heaven, ever interceding for us. He has put away our sin so that we are the kind of people who can sing, Lord, haste the day. What's that mean? That means quickly let it come. Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Is it well with your soul? It is if you're waiting for Christ.